And so it has come to this. A friend of mine once told me that. Said no matter what happens in a conversation, no matter where it goes, if you hit an awkward pause, you don't know what to say, you can always say, and so it has come to this. Nevertheless, here we are. Week number eight of uh, the science of happiness. Sorry, I had a radio flashback just then. Like I used to do uh, radio about 10 years ago now. I was thinking, man, that was a smooth transition. And now I've lost it. The point being... I hope you've enjoyed the last eight weeks. Well, seven weeks, including this one, right? Um, I started this because I was curious. And I hope that this series has stirred curiosity in you. Traditional psychology has been all about mitigating harm, mitigating negative emotion. How do I make you less depressed? Right? How do I take you from a minus 10 to a minus 5? But it hasn't had much to offer those of us who are maybe sitting at a plus 1, plus 2, and we just wish we knew how to get more out of life, how we could enjoy our lives more. And I think traditionally, or maybe not traditionally, culturally perhaps, we are told that the way to do that is through consumerism. Right, Buy more stuff, go more places, spend money on things. And yet, if you followed through this course, you would have heard a lot of things that you can do that will increase your quality of life that cost you nothing. In fact, I could make an argument that say all of the things that were covered in this um, course review will cost you nothing to apply. And in fact, at this point too, I do want to draw attention once again and credit where it's due to the team at University of California, Berkeley, who put this course material together. They're the ones I've been reviewing um, the content from. And you yourself could do this very same course if you go to um, edx.org, edx.org, and search for The Signs of Happiness. Uh, there are different intakes throughout the year, and I would very highly encourage you to check it out for yourself and give it a go because I found it really, really impactful. And uh, I hope that you have as well. In fact, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com and let me know what has stood out the most to you. What's been the most impactful? And there might be a few more things by the time we're done today as well. It's probably going to be a bit of a shorter uh, episode this time around because we've only got a couple of new concepts to introduce. And then just a bit of an overall recap for your sake, for my sake. And... Um, if I stay present in mind enough, I will try and share again with you the things that I've found the most helpful. But again, would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. So to start off with this final week, we're looking at a cutting edge area in the science of happiness, something very new. And that is the research that has gone into positive states like experiences of awe, beauty and spirituality. So when we're talking about awe, Scientifically, they've defined it as being faced with something that's greater than ourselves, that we can't comprehend with our current knowledge. And immediately, I think of how our cultural values can get in the way of awe. Because to say, I don't know, is something we try and avoid. It's something that I used to try and avoid. I, I feel that admitting that is much easier for me now but i remember very clearly i used to always reply oh i know <laughs> to stuff even when i didn't know um even thinking back as far as high school i can remember that happening always wanting to sound like i knew and that actively works against this idea of awe doesn't it so how easily can you admit when you're in a situation that something is beyond your understanding the thing is if you can admit that it's actually good for you 
So the examples that they give more in this particular section of the course is to talk about the awe we might feel uh, at the top of a huge mountain or in the face of a revolutionary idea or a heroic person. And um, particularly in the realms of spirituality, then um, that might have some pretty obvious applications for you. But there's even people like Edmund Burke, Immanuel Kant, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Max Weber who have wrote about this experience of awe that people experience in a secular setting as well. So to go deeper into this, to understand a little bit more, one study found that people feeling awe um, was in, that was induced just by looking up at huge trees felt less self-important and less entitled. And they acted kinder and more generously, um, asking for less money to participate in the experiment. There was another um, study that found even a brief experience of awe increases modesty, humility, intellectual curiosity, and happiness, while having a physical effect that no other positive emotion does, and that's lowering cytokine levels, and those are associated with disease. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. Um, the love of nature is something that they've said makes sense from like an evolutionary perspective. So being drawn towards lush surroundings helps us find resource-rich places to live, end quote. Um, I feel like that kind of ruins it. <laughs> you know, like, it's kind of like beauty. Um, beauty has had different, what's the word, different forms in different cultures. And yet it is something that we universally seek and respond to and to me something that makes beauty more impactful i suppose is just that we are for one reason or another made to appreciate beauty i kind of like that just in and of itself it's just something that we enjoy uh, a wonder of our of our creation of our makeup that we can experience beauty as well even think about the world we live in right why aren't all flowers the same color I mean, they could be, right? <laughs> Why are different trees, different shades of green? They could all be the same green. Why not? It'd be more efficient, wouldn't it? Um, those sorts of things to me anyway, just say that this world and something about our place in it is made to appreciate beauty. And just, ex uh, you know, accepting that and acknowledging that makes it a more special place to be. Um, in fact, in regards to spirituality in particular, uh, studies have shown that spiritual people are happier and less depressed. Um, and when those ask why, the common answer is just that spiritual people have strong communities, which is very true, and also that because they have more experiences of awe, more acknowledgement of something greater than themselves. So, can awe buy you more time and happiness? This is a question that Stacey Kennelly asked. And uh, various studies out of Stanford University have shown that awe makes us feel like we've got more time on our hands, even more than feelings of happiness do. Isn't that remarkable? For example, they got people to write about awe, and uh, it makes people less impatient and more likely to volunteer their time, but not their money, interestingly enough, uh, than writing about happiness. And people feeling awe report being more satisfied with life and they're more likely to choose to buy an experience versus a material good, which requires time to enjoy. And in fact, there is a lot of study into the fact that even longer term, we personally experience more positive emotion as a result of buying experiences 
rather than material goods. And think about that for yourself if you've not heard that concept before. Think about a pair of shoes that you bought a year ago versus a holiday that you went on a year ago. Which one makes you happier now to think about it? So, moving into the next part, we're looking at study from Yasmin, Yasmin Anwar, and she looks into whether or not awe can boost health. And according to a study of 200 young adults, so it's a relatively small sample size, disclaimer, disclaimer, um, experiencing, so a study of 200 young adults experiencing more positive emotions on a given day, particularly awe, wonder, and amazement, is linked to lower levels of the cytokine interleukin-6. And that was what I was talking about earlier on. It's a marker of inflammation. And uh, broadly speaking, a body that is showing signs of greater inflammation has poorer health. Um, those elevated levels are particularly likened to um, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, Alzheimer's, and clinical depression. So again, if you've only just joined the series at the last... Um, step last stage i'd encourage you to go back through the beginning because one of the things that fascinated me about this information that i wanted to share with people was to say that there are genuine tangible health benefits to a life that acknowledges these things that lead to not only a more positive experience of life but greater physical health as well i mean think about that right it would be one thing if these things made you feel happier but you know you still had heart attacks and strokes and whatever at the same rate as everybody else. If I said to you that there was something that you could do that would reduce your risk of, you know, heart disease and stroke, if you did this one thing every day and it was a physical exercise and you knew your family had a elevated risk of that, people would go, yep, sure, you know, what is it? I'm prepared to hear about it. <laughs> or more likely, perhaps. But if what if I said to you, well, okay, be more grateful. It, it, it almost, and this is tapping into the residual cynicism I still have, it almost feels a bit too flippant. Like, oh yeah, whatever. Right? Well, there is so much science now to prove that there is an, an increase in health and well-being from applying these principles to our lives as well. Adam Hoffman looks into how awe makes us more generous. And uh, various studies actually have linked it to generosity, ethical behavior, helping other people, etc., etc. Um, and again, as simple as gazing up at enormous trees, um, participants were more helpful when the experimenter dropped a box of pens than participants who hadn't looked at the trees. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Maybe they were green pens. Uh, and, uh, and another experiment after watching videos of natural disasters or things like volcanoes and that kind of stuff, or slow-motion water droplets, participants distributed resources more fairly, and they suspect, again, we're at the theory side of things here, that part of the reason would be that the, the self feels smaller when we're experiencing awe. Maybe it increases our, our knowledge of our need for one another, breaks down our self-importance and that kind of thing. So that is the science of awe. And now for something truly fun. We're looking at the science behind laughter, play, and narrative but laughter and play do you feel like the world's getting kind of serious we're going to get into some applications of this as it relates to schools very soon but yeah laughter is really important it might seem frivolous and silly or something but it actually helps us survive um sometimes we laugh in response to 
contradictory pieces of information um, and it reinforces our curiosity and our desire to learn. It, it improves social relationships because it signals playfulness and cooperation. Um, and there's cultures around the world that um, all have people whose role it is to make other people laugh. Think about it, right? The jesters, the comedians, the uh, the fools, the whatever you might want to call them. We value that. And it's interesting when you under... What's the word? When you don't value that as highly... I mean, think about what growing up looks like, right? If nothing else, it's becoming more serious. <laughs> what was that joke from... Not joke. Well, what, I don't know what you would want to call it. From the Joker in um, the second Batman movie. You know, why so serious? <laughs> but in that kind of grim and terrifying term. Um, one study has looked into how much children laugh. And they start laughing at age four... Uh, and then they laugh hundreds of times a day. And they say that adults seem to have forgotten how to laugh. We can go weeks without a laugh. In fact, on average, adults laugh 17 times a day. While kindergartners laugh 300 times. Why so serious indeed, right? Um, research suggests that we'd get a lot of benefits out of cultivating it. Because laughter, first of all, on a health level calms the cardiovascular system it decreases blood pressure and it enhances it enhances immune function um, and for the elderly it improves depression and sleep quality and combined with exercise it reduces chronic pain and improves health laughter in fact i'm reminded now of laughter clinics i think they call them they started to um pop up around the place a little while ago i'd have to look into it more i'm i'm got a look of deep concentration right now i feel like i should start videoing these but they they had people who specifically would get together just to laugh for no particular reason other than laughing and uh, started to report these different benefits look into it it's fascinating next part though in terms of the benefits of cultivating laughter is in terms of coping so they did a study with middle-aged widows who laughed when describing their partners six months after their death uh, not laughed at their partner, but you know, just generally describing them, they laughed. They were found to be in better psychological health several years later. They were less, they had less anxiety and depression, more purpose, and better relationships. Uh, and then thirdly, in regards to relationships, laughter can bring partners, strangers, and even adversaries closer together. Uh, although there are some gender differences in how we laugh. So in the end... Laughter makes us more lighthearted and reminds us that there are some things in life that just don't matter. They're not that important. So why do we laugh, though? For those of you with a more analytic streak, uh, Jill Sutty did a study into this and um, has said research shows there's three types, primary types of humor. So there are jokes when we're surprised by an unexpected outcome. There's nonsense humor and there's sexual humor. So when we, air quotes, get a joke, our brains release dopamine, which serves to relieve tension and boosts attention, uh, motivation, and memory. And laughter can also be good for our health because it increases blood flow and strengthens the heart, increases our pain threshold. And when relevant humor is incorporated into the classroom, students not only have more fun and feel motivated, but they perform better as well. Weird how, again, like I feel like we forget so many things that are so intuitive when we're younger. And I be interested to know where that comes from maybe we just get more cynical who knows 
but all the stuff that we kind of see you, you see it intuitively and i don't know we just think that age makes humor less important i mean to be honest if i find an older person who's in a cheerier mood i think that's a greater achievement than finding an older person who's surly right you know what i mean like you meet somebody who's managed to maintain a a positive joyful approach to life i think that needs to be celebrated more than it is and it looks like there's health benefits behind that as well so even if you wanted to fight over whether or not that would be frivolous and silly well if one option gives you a heart attack and the other one doesn't pick your poison buddy on to the next part uh there's study by elizabeth walter into scientists making rats laugh but to be honest that just kind of goes places i don't really care about um so we're going to look into play and the pursuit of happiness and we hear from Dacker Keltner here again. Um, you would have heard his name a few times throughout this course if you've been listening to a few t- uh, few of the episodes. He's one of the senior lecturers on this, and um, lovely guy. Had the pleasure of chatting to him once. There's actually a podcast I've recorded with him. Um, if you want to go back in time and track that one down, but he talks about play as defined by being unstructured, free, and joyful time with other people, and it can range from physical or mental games to bantering and play acting. Um, the thing about play is it should feel purposeless and improvisational. It should be voluntary and fun and allow us to forget about time and self. Now, something fascinating, well, we actually, we will get to this in a little moment, but I will say this immediately made me think of how we seem to want to make play into education now. And like, I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with applying principles of gamifying um education but true play is just play for play's sake right like let's just have fun the amazing thing about the the human mind is that we learn through repetition right if there is no repetition there is no learning and so we will learn by our nature that is who we are you kind of don't have to manufacture it if you get anyone to do anything multiple times they will get better at whatever it is provided they're you know paying attention to progressive achievement um improvement rather um actually you know what i'm going to catch myself out on that i think anything that you do do repeatedly whether you intend to or otherwise you will improve you might improve faster if you're kind of keeping a track or a log of something but yeah Anyway, there you go. You've got to be prepared to catch yourself out on your own podcast. So there you go. Score one for being mindful, I suppose. Why not? Um, all to say, like laughter, you know, play can seem kind of frivolous, um, but it's got really important functions. Like we, we can try out different skills um, without a lot of pressure on ourselves. Like, you know, you could pretend... When you are a kid, you know, you used to pretend to be different things and you could pretend without massive consequences you see what i mean like if i pretend to be a lawyer these days i'm in trouble uh pretend to be an accountant i'm in trouble but uh, um if i pretend in a play kind of sense you get an opportunity to to try something on and see how you feel about it cultivate your identity and you know you could learn about the physical world as well you know you could pretend to be a builder and you make sandcastles right and we also learn about boundaries of safety, like, you know, play wrestling and accidentally getting hurt or something like that. Like you just learn that, well, first of all, I need to be careful of other people, but 
also that other person learns that, yeah, if you get hurt, it kind of sucks, but you don't die, right? Like, I feel like we kind of lost that a little bit, particularly with care of children and things like that. Nobody wants them to get hurt purposelessly, but hey, man, fall off a swing. Oh, well, <laughs> right? It's not that big a deal. Um, so the thing is, overall, it shouldn't be surprising for us that play is strongly correlated with creativity and learning and solving problems. Um, it boosts social connectedness and, um, and well-being while lowering stress. And one investigation to people prone to pathological violence found that they never played when they were young. I'm going to say that again. One investigation into people prone to pathological violence found that they never played when they were young. Amazing, right? So David Elkind picks up the thread at this point, and this is what I was referencing earlier on, that there's this disturbing trend towards less play. So overall, kids play um, eight hours less a week than they did about 20 years ago. And apparently in the States, about 30,000 schools have eliminated recess, which I think is the lunch break. Help me out, American people who are listening. Um, but either way, if you're eliminating a break, full stop. Doesn't sound like a good idea. Um, in 2003, kids spent 50% less time outside than they did six years before. So there's a variety of factors, they think, behind this. Technology being a main one, drawing kids indoors. And there's also more single and working parents, which means kids get sent off to be supervised by coaches and tutors and things like that. Um, and I also feel like there's a, a fear motive coming into play here that they talk about that says because of a precarious job market, um, parents are pushing their kids to focus on academics to get ahead. What I think is interesting and why I would love to see this kind of study applied broadly through our education system is that that only really builds your IQ and your EQ is as important. I will never say one is more important than the other because they do support one another and a well-developed IQ and a well-developed EQ can really change the world. But we do seem to have this obsession with IQ. And yet we don't know how to have difficult conversations with one another. We don't know how to build proper relationships with one another. We don't know how to deal with the natural rough and tumble that comes from well-meaning but flawed people who sometimes say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing but are still good people. We don't have those skills. And I think that is a bit of a tragedy. But I guess in this case we're talking more about play, right? So we're going to go back to that. Um, they're saying in these studies as well that, yeah, the kids they might be holding their kids back from the benefits of unstructured, self-motivated, imaginative, and dependent, independent, and independent play. English, huh? Gets you every damn. Um, I like that idea of imaginative as well. Like, how do you figure out what you're into as a kid, right? Like, it comes back to that idea of, you know, you, when you're playing, you can try out a certain skill set, imagine what it would be like to be a whatever, Right? Like, you figure it out through play. So many people have no idea what they want to do. I mean, I was very much one of these people. Don't really know. You've got a lot of skills that you've acquired, but, but what do you want to do with them? Play more. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? We're like, we're a little bit work-obsessed, I feel. Just a little bit work-obsessed. And it explains in our overall health stats, mental health, physical health as well, I think, that we are pursuing things that are not... It's not that they're not important, you know, you do need balance for this kind of stuff, but we've lost track, I think, of the emotional health that we need to support this 
intellectual performance, this quote-unquote peak performance that we're looking for. You've got to have the two of them combined together. Um, in fact, there's studies that have shown that play-oriented early childhood programs improve IQ. So, ha. Huh. Um, overall, too, showing that recess at school can make kids more attentive and better performing in school. You know, it's interesting with that, right? Because I do study, um, I do study, I do training um, as, a, as a profession as well. I, I run training seminars and things like that. And even we know that if you have a three-hour training session, you need a break in the middle of it. Like, we know that, you know, you can't just info bomb people and expect them all to take it on board. So, yeah, you need a break. And not only do you need a break just to refuel the body physically, I think the idea of play, making time to play, is really, really important. So, as kids get older, there's some study talking about how play has different functions. So, early childhood, you're learning colors and shapes and tastes and sounds and then in primary school you're learning respect and friendship and cooperation and competition and then in adolescence you're exploring identities and staying healthy and learning how to blow off steam and then as adults it helps us promote flow that state of being just deeply immersed in something that is sufficiently challenging and also interesting to us that time just melts away so the last main thing we're going to look at is the power of narrative and Decker Keltner comes back in at this point as well just to talk about how they are symbolic structures that we use to make sense of our lives and there's there's generally two main types so one is a micro narrative that tells stories about our daily struggles and stresses and then there's the meta narratives that's the broader story or the of the self and our journey through life and it could include a lot of different elements, things like conflicts and turning points and themes and major characters and all this kind of stuff. But it tends to center around ideas like suffering and compassion and forgiveness and empathy and that kind of stuff. So how this comes together in terms of our happiness is that studies have shown that people who tell more vivid and engaging stories have higher well-being later in life. One thought behind it is that they've got more quote-unquote possible selves you know different stories or identities and it's correlated with less depression and in other words you're not so narrowly boxed that imagine if all you had was your career right and then your career for one reason or another falls over what do you do well if you're still you know fit and healthy you've got a, an identity that also says you're a you know a, an athlete or something like that or you know your family's well um, or you've got other hobbies and things like that you've got other things to support yourself uh, Paul Zak looks into this further as well and into how studies change the brain sorry how stories change the brain and that we've I mean think about the power of story in cultures right we talked before about how there being a role within society of joke telling and humor well you know this idea of storytelling as well is incredibly powerful I mean we managed to make history boring think about that for a second we make history boring when you think of doing history at school, you might have loved it, but you also might have hated it. And yet when you were a kid, did you love stories? I bet you did. I bet you did. I'm getting all animated about this thing, man. We make history boring, but history is just stories and they're staggering. They're amazing stories. They're incredible. Anyway, an effective story I talk about is something that holds our attention and transports us into our character's world and it affects our oxytocin levels. And this is something that's been very strongly correlated with an increase in, in physical well-being. Um, there's a really interesting book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I cannot remember the author, 
but it talks about how stories follow similar patterns. Uh, they've got this rising conflict that needs to be resolved, and the hero goes through a particular journey of discovery. And we resonate with that. I think it speaks to our common humanity. When we looked at the idea of self-compassion, this idea of common humanity came through quite strongly there as well. It just said that when I make a mistake, do I beat myself up about it? Am I brutal with myself? Or do I realize that actually all human beings make mistakes? Yes, there may be consequences that I need to address, but it doesn't make me any less worthy as a human being than any other person because that's part of being human, right? And this is the kind of stuff that we can acknowledge in a podcast while you're listening to me talking, but I would really encourage you to think about how do you speak to yourself? What's the story about yourself that you say when you make a mistake? I did something the other day and I can't remember what it was now, but I said something like, oh, I'm such an idiot. And I went, whoa, whoa, hang on. That is not okay. (laughs) That is not okay. But don't we learn to do that to ourselves? I don't know why it is. Maybe it's because we're afraid somebody else will say it. So if I say it first, it's not going to sting as much. I don't know. But what if we said, well, I'm still learning. Well, I'm still learning. Well, I still have something else to learn. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. Um, so all these things said, the last section we're going to look at is now that matter of finding your fit. And we have looked at a lot of different things that you can do to improve boost your happiness and so lastly we're going to touch on a few of what those things are and then i would encourage you maybe to go back through some of the previous episodes if you'd like to and and the things that might stand out to you in terms of actions you can take so research has shown that various factors kind of make a difference in terms of finding out what activities work for which people and this is not just for happiness but for everything so the first one is motivation and effort so how driven and committed we are The second one is the um, efficacy of beliefs, whether we believe we can do it and whether it will work. I like to think about that as power as well, but that's another thought that I need to develop at another point. Baseline effective state, how happy we are to begin with. That is about 50% of your experience of happiness, according to research that was done by Sonia Lubomirsky and others. Then there's social support, whether other people will encourage us to do it. There's demographics, age, sex, sex, culture, socioeconomic status, that sort of thing. And then the characteristics of the activity. So how often, how much, and what type of activity. That's the way of finding your fit. Um, Stacey Kennelly also goes into more detail about this. um, Some preliminary evidence on how these kind of factors might make a difference. So in terms of motivation... The same activity has a stronger effect when you call it a happiness exercise versus a cognitive exercise, possibly because people who sign up for happiness um, expect benefits. Who knows? Um, We also get better results when we've expressed a preference for a certain exercise before. In terms of effort, people who put in more effort get better results. The old work hard thing, right? Imagine working hard at being happy, though. Now, that is something I can get behind. Then the baseline effective state. In general, happiness activities work better for people who are mildly depressed, not people who are happy or severely depressed. Interesting, hey? So I suppose it's more that how much of a difference it can make if you're at a, you know, minus two. uh, You're going to get a bit of 
a bigger boost out of the stuff that if you're like a plus five or six or something like that um, or if you're severely depressed at a minus 10 that can be where traditional psychology and those approaches can also benefit you as well uh, then we're looking at social support happiness practices work better after we read testimonials or things like that that say that they are effective even if they're fake by the way <laughs> um, that's true demographics um, westerners this is interesting tend to get more benefit out of happiness practices than other cultures but asians may benefit more from activities that serve others adults tend to get better results than adolescents why i don't know but that's what they tell me and i've never questioned science in my life hashtag sarcasm characteristics of the activity so as we've talked about in previous weeks things like gratitude journals and things like that are more effective once a week than they are if you do it every day and acts of kindness are more powerful when you perform five on the same day as opposed to one a day over five days right um so in general variety helps prevent an activity from becoming routine and stale so when we're choosing a happiness practice think about our personality life circumstances extroverts might prefer more social stuff while um, introverts or more busy people should practice find practices that don't take as much time or maybe a more reflective in nature okay so lastly lastly not quite lastly getting getting towards lastly uh, a preliminary way to measure whether an activity is a good fit is to see how much self-determined motivation we have to perform it so that self-determined motivation includes five factors so first of all it's natural so the best activities feel easy to do sounds like the path of least resistance which is something that i was always told you shouldn't do anyway Secondly, it's enjoyable, so they're fun or interesting or pleasant. Thirdly, they're valuable, so they, we believe that they're worth doing. Fourthly, guilt. The best activities aren't done out of a sense of guilt or shame. Man, that's powerful. How much do we use guilt and shame to get people to do stuff? All the time. Why? Because it got used on us. Um, interestingly, too, I've seen study into that that talks about how with guilt, you can conform somebody make them conform but you will never transform them i'm going to say that again i feel like that's a good thing to remember with guilt you can conform a person but you will never transform them and then lastly situational the best activities are the ones that we choose not the ones we feel forced into based on circumstance social pressure that kind of stuff so in other words what do you want to do it's such a powerful question what do you want to do what do you want what do you want oh my god what do you want should go and write that down somewhere or talk to somebody about it what an awesome conversation what do you want not what do you feel like you have to do don't get bogged down and like oh but i don't think i can because blah 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 no no just what do you want so good um and remember too that this kind of stuff can take work it takes time if you've got a particular ingrained mindset about something you know what i will say and this is the thing that i always contend with on these ideas right we have a belief that change is hard and difficult and i think it's because it's grounded in discipline and effort and struggle but if you understand how insight can work it changes everything and so briefly i want to talk about that so insight is just the power of new thinking and it's something that we have all experienced it's that aha moment that one that you get at two o'clock in the morning or when you're standing in the shower or when you're sitting in the car or whatever and you've been curious about something and, and wondering about it and you're in this space where suddenly this idea comes to you and you go oh, that's it you know what i'm talking about and you get this rush you know you feel great in that moment you're like yes that's it 
that is exactly what it is. You know, you've got a bunch of people sharing ideas around a boardroom table or something like that, and it's all just blah, 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 blah. And then that one man or woman says, what about this? And you go, yes, that's it, right? Like it's got power and we all resonate with it. When that enters your life, that produces instant effortless change. Instant effortless change. And it comes from being present in the moment. It comes from not being so caught up in our thinking that we're just in this mental tornado, right? If you understood that your mind had a natural ability to restore you to balance, you'd relax a lot more. I mean, think about when you're physically sick, right? What's the one thing that everyone says to do? It's the universal panacea for being sick. People will tell you to rest, correct? doesn't matter what it is. I don't think there's a physical illness where they say, oh, well, you really need to go for a run around the block and you'll feel better. Right? If we know that for physical health, how come we don't know that for mental health? Hmm. If we're stressed, what do we do? We think more about it. We obsess over stuff. We go and get everybody else's ideas. We say, oh, what should I do? What should I do? Right? Stress ourselves out. And as a result, we just downward spiral downward spiral not a good idea well what if you took a mental rest what if you're oh this is really bothering me i should just go do something else go do something fun go laugh go enjoy myself you'd be amazed how much that would help in fact there's been studies into um you know insight and i'm trying to think of the word they used in their studies it might come to me later but saying that even the whole power of sleeping on something like that's not imaginary that if people do that and come back to something the next day, the chances of having fresh, insightful, new thinking about it is, is much, much higher. So I'd say all that to say that whenever I see things that talk about how changes of mind are difficult and effortful, I would say that it's partly because we don't really rely on the power of our own creative mind, your perfect mind that's designed to help you calm down, come back to balance. Maybe as one final example, let me just say this. You know, think about the most stressed you've ever been. Maybe the most upset, the most sad you've ever been. Are you that sad right now? No, you're not. It might still make you sad, but if you remember that moment, it could have been a breakup, it could have been a death, it could have been just really bad news. But are you as sad as you were in that moment? No, you're not. No, you're not. Right? It's because your mind will naturally help restore you to a place of balance. And if you knew that and could relax in that, in the same way that your physical body restores you to health, how much more, how much differently, how much more confidence would we approach challenging circumstances knowing that our mind was designed to help us calm down and chill out, right? So, in terms of how to, the, the main takeaways, um, Decker uh, Keltner and Emiliana Simon-Thomas, who was the other senior uh, course lecturer for this um, series, say that there's four main things that they want to get you to take away. So the first one is kindness and compassion are in our biology. They are natural for us and we naturally get a boost when we function in that way. Secondly, though, is that negative, motion, negative emotions negative emotions, negative emotions are a part of life. And what matters is actually how we deal with them and recover from them. Thirdly, is that our attention is limited, but we are happiest when we're focused on or mindful of whatever we're doing right now. 
And then lastly, they say that change is hard but possible. I have ranted already enough about how I feel about that, but I get I get where they're going. All right, blah, 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 disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, they'd also encourage us to reflect on these questions, and this is what I would love to hear from you about as well, and you can send those answers through to theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com. And they are these. What information has been the most engaging? What's been the easiest or the hardest to take in? Which happiness practices are easier or harder for you to do and why? How can you improve your happiness beyond just what we've talked about over the last eight weeks by continuing some happiness practices or setting some life goals? How can you become more social, kind and compassionate, mindful, grateful or positive? Which one of those stands out to you and what could you do to improve that? How has your life narrative changed after learning all this information? And how can you spread happiness in your community? And that's it. That is the science of happiness. So thank you for joining me. If I was to tell you the things that I have found most impactful, wow. I remember very early on, we looked at meaning and purpose. Um, In fact, that might not even be the right way of describing it. Um... I think it was like happiness and purpose and saying how those two are not necessarily connected. I think I have missed out on a lot of great experiences or fully experiencing them because I was so consumed in purpose that I didn't really stop to enjoy the moment. So that struck me a lot that really this idea of stopping in the moment and say, hey, we're all on a journey somewhere. None of us are where we want to be completely and you know what we'll probably keep moving that finishing line our whole life but if you do that for your whole life you'll miss out on a lot of great moments and so for me this idea of pursuing happiness as a way of a more meaningful and engaging life was pretty cool um i would also say things like forgiveness and the framework that was provided for that the idea of things like having unenforceable rules for other people and realizing how that can get in the way of our experience of life and cause us to hold on to bitterness and things like that. That was quite impactful. And self-compassion, realizing how much our culture relies on flogging ourselves, having a really harsh inner critic, and it's not really working for us. And so instead, having that kind and compassionate attitude towards yourself and seeing yourself as being part of a wider family, you know, what is what your struggles are as a part of a, um, you know, common humanity. Um I loved seeing how things like gratitude were just such a universally powerful tools for increasing happiness. Um, there's so much to that, you know, it gives me a sense of abundance um, when you stop to be grateful. We have so much in the Western world in particular. I think I talked in one of the sections that you only need $100,000 of assets to be in the top 8% of all human beings on the planet. So that means if you have $100,000 worth of assets, Maybe not even owning the house you're in, but maybe all the furniture, a couple of cars, things like that. Uh, nine out of ten people in the world would swap places with you in a heartbeat. Think about that. Probably means for the rest of us in the Western world too that we're comfortably in the top 20%, right? Top 25%, which still means that eight out of ten people would swap with us in a heartbeat with all that we have. Um, I love the thoughts about social connection and how much we need one another and the ability to have those conversations and that connectedness there those would be the main things for me that stand out right now Um, and I'm sure there would be 
others as well but i would love to hear from you so again lastly you can send those thoughts through to me at the andrew curtis show at gmail.com thank you for joining me on the science of happiness don't call it a comeback i've been here for years i'm rocking my pants put suckers in